Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian. And for this episode, Josh, we're going to cut your tongue out and put it in a bundle of twigs. Hooray! Wow, all right. You just <laughs> went to the most brutal possible uh, option there. Well, you know, uh, why beat around the bush? I guess. There are a lot of bushes, however, in this movie that we're about to talk about. Oh, that is a segue if ever there was <laughs> thank one. Thank you. Thank you. So in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we've been talking about the films of 1999. And given that it happens to be around Halloween, we thought we'd uh, add a little extra category episode thing in and do a uh, Halloween-themed film, and that is The Blair Witch Project. Yeah, I love when we're around the holidays and we get to do holiday movies in season or special episodes. And The Blair Witch Project, no, it didn't take place on Halloween, although the it takes place almost around Halloween. It's it's right in, in October, late October, I think. Yeah. And the last day of filming was actually on Halloween. All right. So I uh, have negated my own point. <laughs> Let's move on. All right. Well, it's not really about Halloween. That's though. what I was going for. Yes, that is true. But it is. Do you know what movie is about Halloween? Halloween. Yes. All right. Well, maybe we'll get to that if we cover 1978 or uh, any of the, the uh, many other years that include Halloween movies. Hubie Halloween. Let's not talk about <laughs> Hubie Halloween. Let's talk, about, talk about the Blair Witch Project, um, which, in addition to being sort of Halloween related, is of course one of the major films of 1999. I mean. It's good that we get this in as a holiday thing because it's an extremely important film from this year. Yeah, this uh, season, you know, is kind of like one of those overstuffed, like, oh, we could keep adding another major film that had an impact. And I don't know how you could do 1999 and not have this in the mix somewhere. So uh, it worked out that we got a little bonus here. But I mean, yeah, the influence, the, the whole feel of this thing, I think, is still relevant today. Yeah, and it's just this kind of out-of-nowhere sensation that that almost never happens. It was this tiny independent film. I mean, we talk about independent films, but I don't know, other than maybe Clerks, if we've talked about a film with this kind of a small budget and, and small-scale kind of thing. It was made on a budget of, well, up to $500,000 uh, with eventual post-production costs, but the initial budget of this was much lower. Right. They kept finding money, which is cool. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. They that's the, that's what filmmakers want. Um, they, you know, they would shoot like a short and then they'd find more money and now they can shoot a feature. And now it's starting to get into, you know, festivals or whatever. And, you know, they can, they can spend for post-production a little more gloss it up, which is weird because this is the least glossy movie ever. Right. But yeah, they kept adding to the budget and like to the point where they were, like, hey, if we don't make money, we're all out of business here. Right. But it worked out very well. Um, it, this film premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in 1999 and just was one of the hugest buzz titles of that festival. And off of that, they were able to get some of those extra post-production funds when this film was picked up by Artisan, which is a company that I don't think exists anymore, uh, for distribution. And it just it snowballed from there in this amazing way building up this buzz and the whole uh, viral marketing campaign for this film is just amazing. And the idea that it's weird because on the one hand, this is a, a, a sort of viral sensation at a time when, you know, social media didn't really exist and that wasn't really a thing. Um, so, but the internet was vital to marketing this movie. But on the other hand, the other vital thing about marketing this movie was the idea that so many people believed that it was true, that it was a real documentary that was actual found footage. And I feel like in the in our current age, when things can go viral because we have all of those mechanisms for it, no one would be able to pull off that kind of sort of hoax about something. It's so it's the first Internet marketed movie to reach this point of mass hysteria. And um yeah, I will tell you the truth. I saw it before pretty much anybody because they, they, yeah, that's right, Josh, you loser. Um, no, they toured it to 40 colleges and one of those was Boston University. So I saw it on the, on the college tour before the release and that was like to get word of mouth. 
And I was confused. I was like, I, I, you know, part of it is you want to believe it's real because you're seeing something so crazy. You'd really love to believe that these people died horribly. Yeah, you want you want those three <laughs> those three dum dums to be dead for their dum dum mistakes, and you want a witch to have murdered them because how many witch murders have you seen? I mean, for real, none. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you do think like I mean, I remember I was like, whoa, was I really did think like that that I had to ask like, is that real? Is that not real? Who I was, did you ask? other people who didn't know <laughs> <laughs> all right yeah um but that was i didn't i didn't remember that um but obviously that college tour and all of these uh sort of festival appearances and the the rollout of this film was done in this way to build that buzz really well and you know they didn't say starring heather and josh and mikey they said you know missing and presumed dead and they they would just have these like kind of newsreel videos and interviews on the website. So they 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 went with the like the less is more and they built this whole myth around it. And um I think as far as marketing campaigns, it's probably as good as any movie's ever done. Yeah, it's really amazing and smart, but also I feel like a lot of it maybe was just stumbled into because the the filmmakers Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez. You know, it just kind of went with what the way they had made the film, where they came up with this mythology and they kind of presented it to the actors. And the film was made in a way that was aimed to get sort of real reactions from these actors. I mean, not that the actors ever thought that the Blair Witch was real, but they were being thrust into this situation without knowing exactly what was going on and given only kind of basic directions to go from one place to another and it's almost like they just expanded that approach to how they presented the movie to the audience right they did end up with a pr slash marketing person who kind of said like let's keep the mystery here so we got to give that credit but you're right in the auditions for the movie the the sign-in sheet read you are about to read for the most demanding and unpleasant project of your career if you are cast we are going to drag you into the woods for seven days of hell 168 hours of real-time improvisational torment. We're not kidding. If you're not serious about your craft, then you're wasting your time and ours. Wow, that's hardcore. I would leave immediately. I probably wouldn't. As an actor, I'd be like, this is interesting, but not for me. <laughs> um, so all of that resulted in a box office gross of $248.6 million on that budget of maybe half a million right. at most. One of, one of the greatest uh, budget to return ratios of all time. Yes. And it was the 10th highest grossing film of 1999 in the US and generally well regarded, although it was interesting to me, like reviews are mostly positive, but this was nominated for two Razzies, which, you know, we've talked many times about the questionable nature of the Razzies, but it is kind of a pop culture gauge of what people thought was lame. And it was nominated for worst picture and won the Worst Actress Award for Heather Donahue, uh, playing Heather Donahue. So, which I think is ridiculous. But I, I guess maybe part of it is that people, because it was marketed as this, quote, real thing, is that even when people knew that it wasn't real, they associated being annoyed with the character with somehow that being a bad performance. Exactly. You, I think you nailed it because she is unlikable as a character. They're all kind of unlikable. Right, on purpose. Right? But that doesn't mean it's a bad performance. And I don't think it was. I mean, I, uh, you know, I keep referencing the book, Best Movie Year Ever, Brian Raftery, um, not to be confused with college basketball announcer Bill Raftery. Onions! Uh, but, uh, <laughs> These references. <laughs> but there's a quote from Heather in there. If I had one skill, it was not giving a shit about being unlikable. And she is unlikable, but that's totally unfair that she got, I don't know who she beat. But um, oh, yeah, I should have looked at. But Dave, who were the 1999 Razzie? Uh, what, what Jennifer Lopez movies? Are? Yeah. No, <laughs> no, but I mean, I think th just the sheer fact that so many people believe this was real is a testament to those actors. Right. That it, they did a good job. Right. Exactly. If, if, if at any moment you thought, oh, this is fake, then that's, you know, that means that the acting wasn't up to par. But if you believed it, then that's good acting right there. And Josh, on top of the Golden Raspberries, which hurt enough, they were also nominated for three Stinkers Bad Movie Awards, the biggest disappointment, which it won for, and noms for picture, actress, and debut. And um, 
the three leads were nominated plus stick people and uh running batteries no see so. this is like uh i guess those those awards i don't think exist anymore but the razzies does dumb stuff like that like makes up little categories to yeah just- but remember you recently referenced like the guy's choice awards uh, yes. this feels like you know when maxim magazine was like uh all the rage and then you know there were like seven other magazines just like it it was like hey we can air a weird award show that's got that we can put on sci-fi channel or you know whatever upn you know <laughs> dave you got us uh, yeah i got your nominees here it was uh melanie griffith and crazy in alabama mia jovovich and the messenger joan of arc uh sharon stone and gloria and Catherine zeta jones and entrapment and the haunting and get this adam sandler won for big daddy that's terrible I uh, have fair. a few issues with that, and I don't think it should have happened. <laughs> I, I can't believe we have an Adam Sandler impression in our episode about the Blair Witch. What was the worst picture that year? Because we know that Josh Yeah, they, they, they didn't win worst picture, oh, right? Wild Wild West. Yeah, yeah, we talked about that in a whole episode, mm-hmm. oh, if you recall. I yeah. tried to block it out of my <laughs> memory, but you know what I haven't blocked out is all the personal revelations you gave us in Fight Club about your sordid past. Well, I'm glad we can bring that up again. <laughs> so despite those negative reactions the Blair Witch Project also did win the John Cassavetes award which is the award for the best feature for under five hundred thousand dollars uh at the Independent Spirit Awards um which is often you know given to filmmakers who are on their way to bigger and better uh careers and stuff like that yeesh so that maybe wasn't the case but what I'm saying is that's that's a that's a prestigious award it's not even just like the the best horror movie kind of thing I think they were the first ones to win it this was the initial cast. Oh, that could award. be. Um, I didn't see that, but certainly that's an award that still exists at the Independent Spirit Awards, um, and is is a is a quite a respectable honor. And again, critics were mostly taken with this film. Uh, Ebert and his uh, guest critic Norman Mark they gave it two thumbs up, and were very enthused about it. Uh, and in his review, Roger Ebert said, "The Blair Witch Project, an extraordinarily effective horror film." has no fancy special effects or digital monsters, but its characters get lost in the woods, hear noises in the night, and find disturbing stick figures hanging from trees. One of them discovers slime on his backpack. Because their imaginations have been inflamed by talk of witches, hermits, and child murderers in the forest, because their food is running out and their smokes are gone, they and we are a lot more scared than if they were merely being chased by some guy in a ski mask. At a time when digital techniques can show us almost anything, the Blair Witch Project is a reminder that what really scares us is the stuff we can't see. The noise in the dark is almost always scarier than what makes the noise in the dark. Any kid can tell you that, not that he believes it at the time. And that's clearly the concept of this movie, is that the hint at something being there is the scariest thing. There's even a sequence where... um... You know, where they get up in the middle of the night and they're looking through the woods and they had dressed the art director in like full body stocking, white, you know, panios over the head. Because they talked about that in the movie, that it was like a white floating figure and the cameraman forgot to pan over. um, So they never got it on uh, tape, but they said like, well, that's okay. It's probably better that we didn't. Right. So it's that, you know, less is more. Let your mind run wild thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've seen plenty of low budget horror movies where. They're building this good suspense and you're really tense and what's going to happen. And they're using their resources really well. And then they get the moment where they show you the monster that they clearly don't have the budget for. And it just falls apart. So that could have happened here. It's probably better they didn't. Yeah, I will. I will. I will give them credit, though, because I think the way they shot everything was uh, it did ratchet everything up. So I bet that would have been like an obscured figure. You would have just seen kind of like at an edge of a frame and. I think they probably could have gotten away with it, but it worked out. Yeah, I mean, in, in that kind of minimalist way, it might have worked. But I think it works just as well here without seeing it at all. To echo Ebert's sentiments, Peter Travers said it reinvents scary for the new millennium. That sounds like something Peter Travers would say. <laughs> but I mean, you know, it's using it's using the idea of taking technology that is now in the hands of everybody and telling stories that that almost anyone can tell there's nothing they shot here that's so crazy but it's the ability to build that story that is what made this such a special piece right no that's absolutely true and um not that 
people hadn't been scaring audiences by leaving things off screen before, but the idea of doing that in, in this, in this format is certainly new. So it's always amusing to see, uh, and we've talked about this before and in variety, which part of their reviews are always kind of speculating on the success, uh, financial success of a movie if they've uh, gotten it wrong. So uh, Todd McCarthy in Variety said, an intensely imaginative piece of conceptual filmmaking that also delivers the goods as a dread-drenched horror movie, The Blair Witch Project puts a clever modern twist on the universal fear of the dark and things that go bump in the night. This resourceful, ultra-low budgeter is probably too raw and lacking in the clockwork, visceral jolts to go over with the general horror audience but it's effective enough that with smart handling, it should be able to move beyond simple cult status. Pick comes across as smart without feeling manipulative, except in isolated moments, and serves as a reminder that effective horror stems much more from psychology than from graphic gore. All the same, the film builds up a sense of horrific expectation that it can't quite match in its payoff. So there at the end, he's, uh, he's kind of, disagreeing with what we're saying that he maybe wanted to see something okay boomer boom <laughs> i nailed him Got but him. it's uh but it does sound like he doesn't understand what that generate i mean we talked about some of this in run lola run right you know that sure it had some wacky technique uh not wacky but unique techniques but really that's just a camera digital camera following a person running and reinventing the story or finding a unique way to tell the story with music or sound design, because this is a great set, no music, but sound design, the way that the cackles are coming and the children's noise. Right, and where, where you, the sense of where they're coming from, too. I mean, you I don't know. Right, right. And, and different areas of, you know, if you see this with a good surround sound system, it's got to be kind of enveloping you, and I this, would think. And this, you know, the real world was out and stuff like that, but this was kind of around that time where Survivor was I don't think it was even out yet. But no, the, I think that's 2001 when right. Survivor started. So the birth of reality TV was there and just this kind of um, digital storytelling, I guess you can kind of do it a little, a little differently than uh, what traditional film fans were, were expecting at the time. Right, and he's uh, in a rare case of underestimating the general public. <laughs> you right. know? Yeah. He's, uh, he's not giving audiences enough credit maybe for their interest and, and in I, something like this. And, you know, we know obviously to make that much money, it had to cross uh, generational and demographic boundaries. But I wonder how many of uh, tickets were sold from like 18 to 35 or something. Right. Well, and I think also one of the things with a movie like this is that at a certain point, it becomes such a phenomenon that everyone thinks, oh, I have to see it. And there were tons of people who went saw this movie after it was heavily hyped and were like, oh, that was a piece of crap. Right. Uh, golden raspberries. <laughs> exactly. And our old friend Andrew Saris in the New York Observer hated this movie and spends much of his review deriding the entire concept of movies being scary, which is great. <laughs> um, so he says, Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez's The Blair Witch Project represents the ultimate triumph of the Sundance scam. Make a heartless home movie, get enough critics to blurb in near unison, quote, scary, and watch the suckers flock to be fleeced. This fictional documentary within a pseudo-documentary form may be the most overrated, underfinanced piece of film to come down the pike in a long time. Incidentally, when did, quote, scary become the highest commercial accolade a movie could receive? Not that The Blair Witch Project struck me as particularly scary, even by infantile standards. Where is the suspense? Where is the involvement? Where is the identification? We know from a printed forward that the three young filmmakers are doomed. And by the time I got to know them a little, I didn't much care what happened to them. Well, he's had a rough 20 years. If he, if he didn't think that if he didn't think scary was a worthwhile element in film, imagine how he's felt for the last 20 years. Well, he's been dead for the last 10 years. Well, <laughs> and that's an even rougher 20 years if you think about it, Josh. Yeah, no, I mean, he goes on and on in this review, as he tends to do. And he, he even goes back to Psycho and, and kind of uh, dismisses that. Psycho because it's just trying to be scary and that's not a worthwhile endeavor. Well, the, the movie that often comes up when researching this is Jaws, because, you know, we don't ever see the shark until really the end there. Right. right. And that kind of phenomenon, that build. 
and everything. So I wonder if he thinks if he, if he thought Jaws was like worthless. When has a shark ever been worth putting on film? <laughs> yeah, he doesn't mention Jaws, but um, I mean, I think his you know his his curmudgeonly response is amusing here. But I mean, I think there's 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 two things that we can or that to me I seem relevant. I mean, specific to this movie, the idea that if you don't care about these characters or that you find them so unpleasant that you don't want to spend time with them. And I can see that happening. Like you said, they're deliberately at least. Yeah, but that gives you a rooting interest to be like, I want them to be murdered. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And I've enjoyed movies like that. But I feel like this, because you don't see like graphic violence or the monster or whatever, you need to at least have some engagement, some empathy with the characters in order to watch you know, to be engaged with watching the movie. Do you think even if you didn't like the characters, the kind of iconic scene with Heather putting the camera on herself and taking responsibility and apologizing for getting them all into this and telling them that they love their moms, like that kind of brings the empathy around to her. I I think so. I mean, I'm not saying I agree with him. I'm just saying that if you as an audience member can't feel that, then the movie isn't going to work for you. Yeah, but I do wonder, I hear you. And I do wonder if it, this was just a, such a different way to tell a story. Not to say found footage hadn't been done before, but it really hadn't been. Yeah, done not like really this. very much. Very, very rarely. And not like this. Yeah. Um, if uh, someone like Saris just wasn't in tune with where this could all be going. Right. No, and that's certainly true. And he was uh, a veteran critic by this point, let's say. Um, not to say that that's to, to dismiss his opinion. But I mean, also the idea of, it, it's it's ridiculous on the one hand for him to dismiss the idea of movies being scary because that's a massive thing for many, many, Forever, many movies. Yeah. Since the beginning of movies. Exactly. And I love horror movies, movies that are scary. But I always, to me, the idea that like, oh, did this movie scare you as a standard for whether it's good? I never feel that way. There's lots and lots of horror movies that I enjoy that I didn't feel scared. And that's not because I'm like tough or something. It's just, that's not what's important. It's more about the characters. Did the characters feel scared? You know, were you invested in what might happen to them? And he clearly wasn't here. And I, as you know, get more into the psychological aspect of these movies. If I can get into that, like I always use 28 Days Later as an example, right? Like, is that the scariest movie? Probably not. But like, there's so much riding on it, like um, from a like psychological standpoint, that like I was so invested that all the scares were bumped up to me, and I thought they they work here because of that. Right? Yeah. I mean, I'm not necessarily I'm not criticizing this movie. I'm just saying conceptually, he has points that can be valid within his sort of uh, old man yells at cloud uh, right, stance. Right. Get off my lawn, cloud. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So you saw this at the at that college screening, and did you see it again as I, it became a sensation? I, I have seen it again, and I don't remember when. It was once in the theater, and then probably once on you know video DVD. But that first screening is like we already knew we were film students, and it was like, oh, this is a big Sundance movie, but um, we didn't know anything about it. It was like one of those like, oh, this is happening, mark the day type things. And um, I think it really worked. And like uh, what we talked about with the sixth sense, the idea of the audience not knowing, like it added so much back then. Yeah, it totally did. So I, I saw this a little later than you did, but still not a little before the, the main wide release. I went to I saw it in L.A. I was visiting a friend of mine and, you so know, the buzz was already out. Right. Exactly. Too. The buzz was there. And but it wasn't playing here. The movie wasn't playing here yet. But I knew it was like something you got to see. And it was like going to a concert. Like, I think it was, you know, maybe tough to get tickets. And I remember being in that theater, which was so full that people were sitting on like the steps in the aisles and just seeing it with an audience like that and the reaction. And I think by that point, we, my friend and I at least knew that it wasn't real. But I don't know that everyone in the audience necessarily knew that and just that whole reaction and visceral feeling. Yeah. It was just amazing. And I was wondering, I could be misremembering this, but watching the movie this time, when it got to the credits, I was thinking I could have sworn that when I saw it, there were no No credits. credits. Right. Okay. I'm right about that. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I remember the same thing. And that's why I had to ask, like, is this real? Cause it just ended and everything. Right. 
Um, and that's so smart for them to do that at that point. I think like, you know, obviously we're watching it on DVD 22 years later or something. Yeah. You know, a year after it comes out on DVD, you can put the credits in and everything. Now I have a question for you. Is this your friend you punched? Yeah, but not at that, not at that particular uh, event. Did you want time. to punch him then? I don't think so. I think we had a good time at that, no, uh, at that screening. It was a nice memory. Dave, so. when did you first see the Blair Witch Project? Okay, so here's the thing for me. I saw it opening night, all right? And kind of like Josh's, it was like super packed in, and everything. In Vegas here? It was in Vegas, yeah. yeah. Now, the thing for me, and I don't know if this is like my own personal Mandela effect or whatever, but... Uh, you thought Sinbad started. I thought Sinbad was in this movie. No, it wasn't a matter of whether it was real or not. It was a matter of, oh, is this based on the Blair Witch that I grew up knowing about? That, that was in the woods around so cool. Pennsylvania. Right. And, and I was 100% certain that was a thing that I'd heard of all growing up, that there was a Blair Witch out in the woods. And I don't know if they put it in my head somehow. I mean, clearly the marketing was built around that, but I, I knew it before, before any of this came and out. What, so you, you're saying not now you weren't sure, but even then you had already... I had already heard of it and I already knew that was a thing before all the commercials came out. So you thought out. this was like a fictional movie based on a real legend. Yes, right. exactly. That, I love that. That's amazing because... You know, I grew up not far from you and yeah. um, ne never heard of that. I mean, obviously, because yeah. it's not real. Right. Um, I don't know how. No, they, but, you know, yeah. you grow up with the, like, you know, we had the Jersey Devil, right? Well, right. And I'm not saying like the Blair Witch isn't real. I'm saying the legend of the Blair right. Witch is Right. That's right. what I mean is so much fun and everything. Yeah. Well, there was the the sci-fi special that was set Curse up. Curse of the Blair Witch. Right. The Curse of the Blair Witch that was set up like a more traditional documentary like the character in this movie mentions like, oh, I might have seen something on the Discovery Channel. And that was kind of how that was set up. Did you yeah. watch that, Dave? I don't remember. I know that it exists. Uh, also, speaking of that, uh, along with my memory of growing up, knowing of a thing called the Blair Witch, I was uh, also 100% certain there was a Scooby-Doo Blair Witch thing. And there was in 1999. Later. Uh, yeah, later, right, right after the movie came out. It was a tie-in. But you but thought I remember it, it having... as a kid. Yeah. So Whoa. the lesson here is Dave is very gullible. Or sees the future. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Possible that one of those. Hey Josh, you mentioned that mockumentary. Uh, we talked about the website, which had 160 million views by August of that year. When uh, I, don't, I still don't think it was in hit wide release yet. And then there was also this show. I think it was called Split Screen. John Pearson, who's like, you know, one of the tastemakers of indie film. He found Clerks. He found this, and he had the these guys. Uh, submit a piece or two like a fake newsreel or a fake uh, inner you know interview story piece on the Blair Witch so like all these little elements combined are the things that made people like Dave think that they had already known about it I think. yeah it's really mm -hmm. impressive and again something that I feel like has not been done to this extent and this effectively with any movie since then how could I, I don't know I mean you know it has to have to be different at this point in yes. time obviously yes it would so anything else on the background you want to mention here Jason you know we kind of talked about the impossible film schedule that they made you know they made these these young actors go into the woods for eight days they shot about 20 hours a day they gave them less food as time went on so they were already going to be irritable you saw the weather conditions. It wasn't nice, you know, and it, they just like they just would set up these crazy stunts, right, where it would be like they'd have like a GPS tracker and that would lead them to like a crate and that would give them a clue of where they were supposed to go for that day or an emotion they were supposed to play. It's a totally wild way to make a movie. And I think they knew like, oh, this could really fall flat on its face. But they were so bored with what was going on in the horror genre at the time that they were like, we have to try something. Right. It could easily have been a giant failure just as a film, even regard before it was even released. It could have just been a mess that they would have said, well, that didn't work out and it would have never gotten released. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to say was producer Greg Hale was in the military and they had this class called uh, Siri Survival es Evasion Resistance Escape, where they dump them in the woods and basically do this to them you know like they chase them for four days they don't let them sleep they take them to a pow camp and that was kind of the basis that as a filmmaking team they came up with to put the actors through this rigmarole so kind of interesting yeah kind of insane too i wonder if you could do that now too or with all the like uh 
It definitely was not a union production. Yeah, you couldn't you couldn't do it now. And even back then, like they said, like this is going to be the worst experience of your life. Right, right. That's fun. Well, we'll come back in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on the Blair Witch Project. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this special spooky episode. Ooh. We did it. We said we weren't going to, but we did. Hey, Josh, uh, what was your best Halloween costume? Uh, I feel like we've talked about this in a previous Halloween-themed film episode, maybe. But maybe Trick or Treat. Yeah, on Trick or Treat, I believe we did. But we can we can do it again if you feel the need. Well, I'd like to know. Uh, I don't know. Well, I think I probably mentioned at that time like my my sad attempt at the very tasteless dead Elliot Smith yeah, costume. Yeah. I, I also did that one. <laughs> and uh, But no, I was never really, and I probably said this too as a kid, I was not a creative Halloween costume person. I would just kind of wear the same one every well, year because I didn't really care. Well, the reason i brought it up is because like after this came out you could have just put on a flannel and been like i'm josh from the blair witch project I, you I have could. long hair you maybe could have held a camera it would have been super easy for you and it would have worked yeah and i, I need to go back in time to 1999 and do that for halloween because now people would not understand i don't think i mean if you need to go back in time we've already established dave has time traveling abilities that's uh, true right that's so. important what was your best halloween costume I remember I was like a can of Coke at one point. So. <laughs> I, I, I feel like we've talked about this too because Dave, as an adult, has had some fun creative costumes when he dressed as uh, Steven Seagal. That's that my favorite. That was a really good one. Yeah. Yeah, that was cool. Good job. I, I was thinking about going as uh, Evan Hansen this year. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The hair, it'll it will work. To, you'll have to age yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that would be good. J- Jason, do you want to? Yeah, I had some I, good ones. I had some good ones. I when I was in college, I, and you couldn't do this now. It was funny then. But I bought like the eight-year-old's Pikachu costume and squeezed into that. So that was a fun one. Uh, this year, uh, my daughter and I, she's going as Wednesday and I'm going as Uncle Fester. So that'll be nice. That'll nice. be fun. By the yeah. time this gets released, I don't know if that'll have already yeah. happened. But I've seen her Wednesday and it's great. And she even puts on like the dour face and everything. Nice. So that's a lot of fun. Um, and then I was like a lot of professional wrestlers as a kid. Right. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. I was Freddy Krueger a bunch of times, I think, and uh, a vampire. And yeah, I, I wasn't a very creative costume person. Yeah, I remember a friend went as Steve Urkel, and he's a white guy. And, uh, you know, mm. you, you could imagine let's, the rest. Yeah, <laughs> let's move on from that. So the Blair Witch Project, yeah. no one wears a Halloween costume in this movie. Um, although, as we established, it does play, take place near Halloween. And, uh, you know, the plot, if you're not familiar, is the idea that there is this myth in Burkittsville, Maryland, of the Blair Witch, uh, a witch of some sort who's been uh, plaguing this town periodically since the 19th century. And Heather, the uh, film student, is going to make a documentary about this. And she enlists Josh, played by Josh Leonard, and Mike, played by Michael C. Williams, as her crew. And they interview some townspeople and then they head into the woods to see what they can find. And what they find is the Blair Witch who kills them. Yeah. Um, that first 10 minutes where nothing scary happens and they're just like uh, Heather and Josh seem to already know each other. And they just meet Mike and they go shopping and just hang out in the hotel. Like so important to the movie. And you would never really I don't think I ever considered that in the past, but just to get to know them and their enthusiasm for this project and the bonding and then to see it all like go up in tatters and how it all disintegrates is like, it's really, really good work. Yeah, it is. And I mean, I think also because as we've established, we don't see the witch, we don't really see a lot of explicit scary stuff at all. And even the little bits we see, it's not until late in the movie. It's really important to know these characters and to understand them because so much of what this movie is about is how the situation, you know, tears them apart and and causes them to start fighting with each other and they, they mentally fall apart. And you have to establish that first. Yeah. You almost wanted someone to yell, you're tearing us apart, Heather. No, you didn't. Oh, okay. Nobody, nobody wanted that. <laughs> nobody wanted, wanted that. that at all. But thank you for bringing in another unrelated <laughs> impression to this episode. Josh. When they were filming, the two things I want to say about those first 10 minutes, like, so they're interviewing, like, townsfolk, right, of Burkittsville, which was Blair back in the day, right? And uh, some of those people were actors, and some of those people were real residents, so they never knew. It was more like the filmmakers just kind of messing with them and, you know, 
creating this whole world like dude leave me alone right but um the other thing is i also think you see how amateurish some of it is because like when heather's doing her presentation of like you know you know here behind me you see these graves or whatever and it's like man you have a long way to go to kind of get that polish but you kind of need to feel just how amateurish they are because they get over their heads very quickly and this kind of like gives you that uh foreshadowing Right. The idea that they're amateurish, not that this movie is, but that if Heather were a real film student making a real documentary about the Blair Witch, it would not be very good. And this would be a horrible plan. (laughs) Right. And it turned out to be a horrible plan. Yes. One other thing I like that I noticed this time watching with the residents is they interview this woman who's holding her child, who is picking her nose and eating it while the the mom does her interview. (laughs) I didn't notice that. I did notice how scared the kid became, which was fun. Yeah. I don't know if that kid was in. That kid might have been, or at least the mom was an actor. Because anyone who says oh yeah, I knew about the Blair Witch and, you know, here's some of the mythology that the directors have come up with. I don't know, man. I'm not an actor. Yeah, but but at the time that this movie was being made. (laughs) Don't you think like, you know, if someone's interviewing you on camera, you could have just gone with it and been like, ah, you know, if you're a local. I guess that's possible. But I had to assume that the people who deliver some of the exposition that's relevant to the story were actors recruited by the filmmakers. But whether the nose-picking child was, if she was aware of it, was she was given any direction on that front, I don't know. Did you, whether watching it originally or watching it this time, I, and I don't know, maybe, maybe you like it, maybe you don't, but like, when did you really start investing in this uh, expedition with them? I, you know, I feel like this time, because I was interesting, you know, it's, it's, I don't remember, like the first time I saw it in that theatrical experience, I remember the audience more right. almost than the movie. And then I don't think I watched it again until 2016 when the sequel, uh, the most recent sequel came out. And watching it that time, I was kind of lukewarm on it. And, but this time I was more into it Maybe because I thought, oh, yeah, this is a little disappointing. And so I feel like I was invested in the characters early on and the expedition and all of that. And like you say, it's important the way they establish them in those early scenes when nothing scary is happening and they're just goofing off and getting to know each other. And I was especially impressed with Heather Donahue this time, like because that character becomes so unlikable. And also, as you said, she is a believably kind of bumbling film student who's trying to make this documentary that maybe isn't even going to get her a very good grade. Her, her ambition is like uh, outweighs her abilities. And at this point, and, yes. you know, uh, just m- mistakes were made much like Timmy failure, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I feel the same way. And like right away, you know, you're kind of investing and like, I think the way they pace out the, the scares or the, you know, the kind of elements to, ratchet it up is really good like you get the piles of stone and then you know it's not like the next thing you hear is a boo or whatever you hear like these crackling noises that night and then it just keeps piling on piling on and like once you hear like the the kids the you know just i don't even know what 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 they're doing but it's just noises of kids and they're like are they happy are they miserable like what is happening here in the middle of the night in the woods like that that's pretty creepy dude yeah, it is. And and the other thing, again, from a character standpoint, I loved is that even like early on and, and, and further on when they're scared and they're in danger and they're lost, when they find some kind of Blair Witch like relic, immediately Heather is like, we have to get this on film right. because she still wants to get her documentary made. And I thought that was really a good insight into that character and how single-minded she is and sort of egotistical that for a long time she's like yeah sure we're kind of miserable right now but it's all in the name of filmmaking sort of thing and they're gonna get it and you know she sticks with that for a long time and i don't think she's the only hateable character like mike you know when he admits to kicking the map into the river or this creek which was an improvised choice he made at the moment and they went with it which you know like at this point you're like man you suck you're the worst but he has redeeming moments when Heather's about to crack and when Josh is about to crack and you see like the softer side of him, you know, and like, it's interesting. These are fully drawn characters, whether one's just ambitious all the way to the point where she has to apologize to her family because she knows she's getting herself and her friend or her coworkers killed. You know, Josh is probably, I mean, we lose him, you know, two thirds of the way through the movie maybe. So like, we don't get the, 
full development that we've gotten with the other people. But even him, you see like the way he's slipped into like um, this feeling of doom and, you know, the, the, it's just made him crazy. Right. And I think there's, if you want to say that Heather is unlikable, I mean, and I think that is true, but she has that arc and that scene, which is probably the most famous scene in the movie of her tear, you know, crying and apologizing like that is that is character development. That is yeah. her realizing that she didn't know what she was doing and she got these other people into this dangerous situation and she was overconfident and made a mistake and regrets it. So, I mean, again, if we want to talk back about Heather Donahue's performance, that's really good acting. I thought so, too. I, I'm not disagreeing with you on that. Um, how about the house when they finally get to the house? Like, that's one of those moments where if not done with care you're like uh this right but like (laughs) that house is also very creepy and then when you know um they've already built up this legend of how the kids were killed there and you see like kids hand prints and blood on the wall and then this guy would put one in the corner because he didn't like the kid watching him murder the other kid and you see mikey there in the corner at the end as the camera tilts over when you know heather's being murdered that's pretty pretty harrowing ending it is. And I mean, and I like, sorry, I just spoiled the movie. Well, yeah. I mean, if you haven't seen it by now and I feel like that's a fair, that's a famous ending too. the, yeah. the standing in the corner. And it's interesting to me that that's become so famous and that people might be familiar with it, even without having seen the movie, because what I liked is that understanding why that's so sinister requires remembering this kind of throwaway line from one of the interviewees from early in the film. And, you know, knowing that that's a famous moment, you notice when that guy says that early in the film, when he talks about the kid standing in the corner. But if you didn't know that that was coming, that might not be a detail that would register that strongly with you. And then you have to kind of remember it as it comes back. So that's trusting the audience a lot. That's true. But I think even if you didn't realize that, just seeing a dude who like has been running through the house and now he's slowly kind of just, I don't even know if he's moving or not moving, but just kind of like, in the corner facing the wall that's already weird enough right and then you know Tamara goes to the ground and it, it, it's uh it, they ratchet it up they get it there right no they do and it doesn't require any graphic violence or gore i mean the the only gory thing we see is uh as you referenced at the beginning of the episode the uh sort of bundle of sticks that has inside uh, josh's shirt or a portion of his shirt with some teeth and is his tongue in there or is it just it a lot of blood of a tongue and yeah you know um in my mind i'm cutting out your tongue mm. so i have to like assume it's his tongue sure because otherwise the reference doesn't make and it's got to work that's what's important mm. that's so <laughs> but i mean that's really the only kind of gross out or gory violent horror movie moment in this film otherwise we're being scared by bundles of sticks and piles of rock and and uh, things tied to trees and things that don't really seem all that scary. Yeah, the one that I remember in the theater, I think even is when they get to that point in the woods and all those figures are hanging, like well, someone took the time to make these like tree bundle stick men. And it's like nothing good can come from being there. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Definitely not. So, I mean, this movie is impressively constructed and and influential but i do feel like i mean it's not it's one of those things that you can watch and really appreciate how innovative it was but because it's been imitated so much some of that effect is a little lost right of course i think if uh we showed it to a younger generation now they'd be like what's the big deal the same way like i the first time i saw north by northwest like it had to be explained to me like that crop duster scene is essential to the development of film right while we're talking about that josh i was going to ask you did you what did you think of the mix of like high eight cam with like i guess 16 black and white there i mean i like that and it's it's interesting to me that you know we talk about this kind of movie can be made because of the development of more you know consumer grade cameras and stuff like that but still you watch this movie and you realize, God, look how bulky all of that stuff is that they have to carry around. The right. fact that they have a film camera with them at all right. is, uh, is, is, is like unheard of now. Right. You know, you and make it this just movie be normal then. Right. Right. And that was how it was. I mean, and it was, it was cutting edge. You know, they talk about the DAT, the audio recorder that they had to like 
sneak out of the university because they're not supposed to have it because presumably it's this really valuable piece of equipment. And now all of that would just be in your phone. Ugh, I remember those college days where I had to like argue to like be like, can I just get a camera for the weekend or, oh, you know, and it, it's crazy. And you think about it and it's like, we're talking about it in this, but like, imagine like those Warren Miller ski movies of the eighties and whatnot, where they're like getting like POV shots of, of world-class skiers down a mountain and everything. It's crazy to, to think of how effective some of these uh, technical experts were and are, Josh. Yes, yes. Um, back to your point. Yeah, like, I don't love this movie. It's fine. Like, it definitely is like, I'm glad it's only 81 minutes, you know? But right. like, I don't, this one, you can't really, uh, I mean, dude, I think we had the same thing with The Graduate where we look at it and you're, and you're like, so, so, in some ways, right? But it's like, this was so influential essential groundbreaking really that like you have to put it in that in its place yeah i mean i think one of the things weirdly to me that was a little taxing while watching this is something that makes it more authentic the idea that that's that's been kind of lost a lot of found footage movies now seem overly slick um because they need to pace things for the audience and you know they're they're made with that in mind but this movie is so authentic that it's at times tedious and boring like repetitive that was to me it does get a little repetitive yeah but you know i got to the point with found footage movies where i was like you're breaking your own axioms here there's no way this part could actually be found footage this is clearly like a staged scene that you just want to tell the thing with you know and it like Kind of that whole genre, like I don't even think it's a genre, but what would you like a subgenre? Maybe it kind of just wore itself out. I think years ago, right? Not to say you can't make a good one still. I think you can make a good one still, but you're right that the rules get frequently ignored, and the idea it's like if you're not going to follow those rules, then just make a movie. Yep. That's okay. hundred percent. You know, if, if I could just say I scored one once, which of course makes no sense whatsoever, <laughs> yeah. but it was a job though. Right. So. Right. And how did that turn out? It was fine. You know, yeah. but uh, you know, it, it really didn't need was music. It, so was it a, um, like, was it a score that had, uh, it was uh, just tension, you know, right. like tension score. But it wasn't like meant to come. It wasn't meant to be diegetic. Right. Come it, from an, yeah. yeah. Josh, um, did you ever see Cannibal Holocaust or The Last Broadcast? Because those are two movies that get referenced as like influential on these type of on this film. I have not seen either of those. And those are really the the only two like notable found footage movies that come before this. Right. Um, Cannibal Holocaust, which was marketed similarly in that a lot of people thought it was real. Um, but uh, no, I haven't seen either of those. So I assume you haven't because you're not really a horror guy. No. No. Dave, have you seen those? I haven't. Okay. But I mean, even though there is that minor precedent, the the amount of found footage that followed from this is just astonishing. The way that this opened the floodgates for a genre that essentially didn't exist. Right. And probably didn't need to exist. (laughs) Not to say that we couldn't have had more cool found footage. I was actually, when I was in LA, you know, doing my rounds as a writer, we had one that was going to be like a National Lampoon vacation and it was all going to be found footage and everything and that would have been fun and it's cool to do that as a comedy but uh instead i'm here with you yeah in this found podcast (laughs) Um, Um, but but i think my point there was that like because they're so rigorous about that format and they really gave the cameras to right. the, and so many found footage movies, it's like, Oh, the character's holding this camera, but the actor wasn't doing any of that. They've got a full professional crew there. Like, but in this movie, they really did do that. It results in a movie that looks like it was shot by three people who don't entirely know what they're and, doing. And I didn't watch the documentary on the making of, but this would be like a fascinating one. It's fascinating to read about and just like, you know, later in the season, uh, sorry, I'm going to give away a spoiler on another episode here. Uh, we're going to talk about American movie, the documentary about a Midwestern filmmaker who will seemingly give up. Uh, anything and everything just to make a movie. Right. And I think these guys, that idea of like, let's put on a show at all costs. Like these guys actually did it. They did. And it could easily, as I was saying before, have just completely gone wrong. And these guys could have remained nobodies who tried something and failed at it. And the boldness paid off, but it was a big gamble. 
Right. Uh, should we rate this thing, Josh? Yeah, we want to rate it out of five uh, bundles of sticks. I was going to say five uh, snotty apologies. Yeah, snot that works apologies. too. That works too. That gets three from me right there. Three snot bubbles and apologies <laughs> to your parents, Josh. I think probably in 1999, it would have been like four, four and a half because it was just so revolutionary to me at the time. But like as a film now, like you said, you know, we've gone down this found footage wormhole for a while and uh so three but three holding up like to this at three considering all the points that you made i think is pretty good well so uh, despite my criticism that i just made i'm actually i'm gonna give this a three and a half uh snot filled apologies and i feel like watching in this time i found more to appreciate about it especially in the the character work and the acting and just the the commitment to that realism so yeah, it's lost something given how many imitators there have been, but I was I was fairly impressed with it this time. So three and a half for me. I'm happy to hear that. Thank you. Dave? I was going to go with three, but I'm actually going to raise it to three and a half because I do think it's kind of the high bar for this subgenre. And so if nothing else can beat it, it might as well be a little up there. All right. Well, we'll talk about that subgenre and more when we come back and talk about the legacy of the Blair Witch Project. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this special Halloween episode of our season on the films of 1999. We've been talking about The Blair Witch Project. And as we've been talking about this whole time, really, I mean, this movie is so influential. It essentially created an entire genre or subgenre of film that has, as we've also said, become extremely played out. Worn out, yeah. But Do you I have mean, a favorite? Uh, footage you or see, a least I, favorite? A li- well, at least for, there's so many. I mean, and I, I, I end up watching so many low budget horror movies for things that I write that there's just my right. l- least least favorite list would just be long and uh, full of a bunch of movies that n- no one has heard of. Um, yeah, I don't. You know, I feel like I should have uh, given this a little more thought in terms of a, a, a favorite. I do like. I know Dave loves Cloverfield, and I like, I like that a lot, a lot too. too. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I thought end of watch was a pretty good one. Yeah. End of watch is good. in that one, I mean, both of those apply the technique to genres outside horror, which is still the most common, uh, found footage genre, even though it's, it's done elsewhere. So, and now, I mean, moving that toward like those real screen experiences that Timor, uh, I, I can't oh yeah, Timur Bekmambetov, the yeah. screen life. Yeah, oh screen life. I call it real screen for some reason, but that screen life is kind of like the next iteration of found footage. Yeah. So like now that's cool because we're seeing even this genre evolve further. Like we, we all like searching. I know you saw the one this year, Profile. That he yeah, did. I liked Profile. I like searching. I love the original Unfriended, which that's the horror movie, and those other ones aren't. But right, that is kind of the new iteration and the new idea of like. How can we take this concept and apply it to technology that we have now and the way people use things now? And uh, yeah, those movies are good. Although I feel like even having seen a handful of those, I'm already like, okay, how much further can we take this? Who knows what's next? Maybe it'll be like ocular <laughs> riff. Right, well, v- VR <laughs> movies. Those those exist too. Did you know, uh, speaking of this genre, that I remember like when I was out pitching like this, like that, found footage comedy um project x at one point was like the most illegally downloaded or pirated movie of all time that movie is terrible yeah but if you're in college and you just want to drink some beers and party like you could totally put that on in the background and who's pirating movies all the time yeah i don't know who's pirating movies now but uh whatever but that is another example of taking that found footage approach in a different genre the the sort of gross out teen comedy i don't think that movie that was one where they really stretched the idea of like, is this found footage? Really? Chronicle was the worst to me on that. I'm like, none of this makes sense as an actual found footage. Movie yeah. People that. love Chronicle. I didn't really care for it. And it, it, you know, when you get to that point, it's like, you're not helping yourself by making this found footage. Just make it a low budget film. It's okay. Yeah. So the filmmakers, uh, Myrick and Sanchez, like, and all the actors other than uh, Josh, like it's kind of like, a blessing and a curse. They all made a ton of money, I'm sure, but none of them really recovered to do much. I mean, they've made a few other movies, uh, but really, it, they haven't really done much. 
Yeah, I mean, Myrick and Sanchez, they don't work. They, they didn't work together after this, but it's weird because they didn't work together and yet they've had essentially the same careers. I know, I want yeah. them to work together. Again. And I don't know why they don't, but they both direct uh, forgettable B-movie horror stuff. And regularly enough that I'm sure, you know, they're working steadily, but not, neither of them have made movies that you would know about or that have been particularly acclaimed or successful. As you said, Heather Donahue and Michael C. Williams both essentially left acting, you know, within the next decade or so. Uh, Heather Donahue was working as a pot farmer. Yeah, she might have a book about it. And she was in an episode of Sunny in Philadelphia. So uh, yeah, that was one of her last credits, I think. Yeah. And uh, Michael Williams works as a works as a guidance counselor. Yeah, but he's, he does. He actually I don't know if he left acting. He's got a ton of credits as like you know, in those like New York, like I'm a guest star in Law and Order or, you know, crime scene, this and that. And he like manages a theater company. He seems super well adjusted. Like he's done well. Yeah. I mean, I think he acts periodically, but, but they don't act steadily. And as you said, Joshua Leonard has gone on to have a flourishing career uh, in indie films as an actor and as a writer and director. I think his best known thing is another improvised film, Hump Day, which I know we both uh, like. I... Okay, Hump Day, Lynn Shelton. You ever yes. see it, Dave? Back when it first came out, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I love the premise and I like where it got to, but I think they let it off the hook at the end. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't remember all the details, but I remember overall liking it. It was a very acclaimed, successful film. Yeah. Isn't he married to Alison Pill also? Yeah, he is. And uh, he just had a film that he directed out fairly recently, I think. So that he's doing very well uh, out of all the people. Uh, the the major creative team yeah. of this film. Well, the horrible story is of d- director of photography Neil Fredericks. Oh, I don't know uh, that story. He was, he was DPing a movie, and he and like the director and uh, two crew members they got into like a plane. They were getting some aerial footage over the sea, and the plane crashed into the ocean. And the other three members got out alive, but he had strapped himself in or like roped himself in i don't know exactly but whatever he did to secure himself to the plane so he could get the footage he wasn't able to get out in time and he drowned that's a horrible story i told you it was a horrible (laughs) story i prefaced it correctly yeah you did less morbid there was uh there were two sequels to this film you saw them both i've seen them both yeah uh this the first sequel book of shadows blair witch 2 is a notorious failure the wildest thing about that is who directed that it's uh is it is it Myrick? It's one of the original Joe Berliner. Oh right, it's Joe. Okay, <laughs> like, what? the Paradise Lost. I knew it was somebody who it was like a duo and they split up. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Did we talk about that in our Paradise Lost episode? I don't remember. I have no idea, but I just can't see him directing that movie. I uh, yeah, obviously I can't either because I <laughs> thought it was somebody else. Yeah. But that that movie, like you said, was uh, just crushed. Right? It was, and it's weird. Like it has a cult following now. And I will say it's not a good movie, but I respect that instead of just saying, here's more of the Blair Witch Project, here's another found footage movie with, with a different characters or whatever, it leans into the whole meta aspect of the mark. You know, it's in a weird way. It's like a sequel to the marketing campaign. Right. This is called Book of Shadows, and it's about a group, like a professor and people who go down to Burkittsville um, to try to learn more about the Blair Witch. Right. And it's set in a world where the Blair Witch Project is a real movie, yeah. but was real. Right. And, and the last one, the Blair Witch, it's just called Blair Witch in 2016, totally ignores that that movie ever took place. But again, relies on the mythology uh, set up in the first. Right. But that movie is a much more traditional sequel. The main character is like a cousin of one of the characters from this movie. And it's found footage. And it's essentially the same plot. A bunch of people go into the woods to find the Blair Witch and then the Blair Witch kills them. And I remember being very disappointed in that movie because Adam Wingard, the director at that time, was coming off your next and the guest. And he was this big indie horror sensation. And we thought, wow, what is he going to do with this, this Blair Witch thing that, that has been dormant for all this time? And he did nothing interesting. And he's gone on to have a kind of 
unremarkable blockbuster career. So maybe this was the first sign of that. But at the Shots time, it was fired. a big disappointment. I mean, it's true. <laughs> as much as you enjoyed his Godzilla movie, Dave, yes. you uh, know, you he definitely with Dave and Godzilla. Dude. I know. But I mean, compared to <laughs> what he Godzilla did early on, the, the recent one, I yeah. think. Godzilla right? versus Kong. Yeah. There yeah. So have you seen either of those, Jason? No, Josh, but I do have my own legacy with the Blair Witch Project. Uh, in college, I made an award-winning short film called Blair Witch the Musical. Did you know that? I probably did and forgot about yeah. it. Yeah. I don't even remember what the contest was for or like what. It was some magazine contest to make a short. And I, uh, I, I figured like what would be the craziest juxtaposition I could do with the Blair Witch Project. And it was Blair Witch the Musical. And I had an actress who was uh, like a bubbly redhead. And she played Heather. And, uh, but we had her as... A, Bernadette Peters playing Heather and like we gave her a song and I played um, Jason Alexander as Josh, which, you know, like cigarette, I need a cigarette, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> and then I think the best piece of casting was I had uh, another classmate of mine play Mikey and uh, but we cast him as Savion Glover playing Mikey. So we'd be like, Heather would be like, Mikey, what'd you do with the map? And he would just do an interpretive dance. And uh, and uh, Laura, who played Heather, won uh, an award for it. It was a fun little project. And actually, I was literally while we're recording this, uh, my friend Carl just sent me the file. So if we can if we can get the file, we'll put it up on uh, on some of our awesome movie here, horrible social media. Yeah, that's great. I feel like I probably saw that when you made it, but I don't really remember. I so. think we did a good job, man. Like, you know, we captured like the ominousness in a very, you know, uh, satirical sense. And uh, I can't say it's better than the the parody, The Bogus Witch Project, which I've never seen. But With Polly Shore. There you go. But uh, this <laughs> that that is my connection to The Blair Witch Project in college that's amazing yeah there's a ton of uh parodies that one the bogus witch project is one of the most well-known the uh, hip-hop witch the hip-hop witch and the the bear wench project <laughs> the uh soft core parody with julie strain that has four sequels yeah, there's five of them um so i really all of those parodies are i haven't seen any of them but they're generally considered to be horrible so your your film is probably better i did win an award and yeah it wasn't a golden raspberry or a stinker or a bad movie or but josh like just to talk about like how influential this movie was there was like a whole cottage industry of just making parodies of this movie. there really is it's amazing how many i mean and that's not even counting like i'm sure there was some saturday night live sketch or you know things like that it's just so influential. And actually, one of the, the, the more obscure things that I stumbled on um, that wasn't even mentioned like on the Wikipedia page for this, but Josh Leonard and Michael C. Williams and Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez all reunited in 2013 for a web series called Four Corners of Fear, which is a mockumentary parody of a behind the scenes documentary about them making the fictional Blair Witch 3 co-starring Tom Cruise. Whoa, amazing. Wow. So it's the four of them. Did you say Heather was in it? Heather is not in it. They talk about how she is like not willing to do the movie. And that's she, one of the storylines. Yeah. And I don't think I only watched the first. There's like 15 four minute episodes that you can watch on YouTube. And I only watched the first two because it wasn't very funny. Um, but I don't think she shows up later. Although uh, one review I read did uh, mention that, you know, they talk about how Tom Cruise is going to be in it. And I think they got someone to play Tom Cruise in later episodes. Ben Stiller is Tom Cruise. Heather was in a, um, a mini series called Taken, not obviously, I know I have a special set of skills taken, but um, it was a Steven Spielberg thing and it won some awards. And it was about like three concurrent stories of uh, being abducted by aliens. So it was like one might've been an alien hunter and one was actually about the people who were abducted by aliens. And then the third story were the people who were hiding an alien that crashed earth. It sounded pretty interesting. Yeah. That was a pretty popular series. And that's, that's really her other like major notable role. Um, I never saw that, but I remember when it was out and it was pretty successful. Well, I guess you don't give any credit to boys and girls with Freddie Prince jr. I don't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do you want to mention any other Freddie Prince jr. Movies in the legacy here? She's all that. Okay. Well, that may come up later. Um, um, no, but look, we, I think we covered yes. most of this and, you know, just the, um, usage of technology, not just in how it was shot and how the story was told, but 
the internet. This was the first, to me, the first internet movie. Yeah, I think you could safely say that. I would say that it is still alive, though. In 2019, there was a Blair Witch game, and it was fairly well-received. Yeah, they made a bunch of video games about it. Uh, yeah, that was like the most recent. Yeah, it did pretty did well. Did you play I it? I didn't play it. But Dave I, I did play it, right. it in 1990. That's true. I did. <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah. He, had, yeah. he had watched a Scooby-Doo adaptation <laughs> of it when he was a kid. <laughs> That's all I got on this thing, Josh. All right. Well, that is the Blair Witch Project, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Check us out on social media and watch Jason's movie. Yeah, we're going to try to get Blair Witch the Musical up on there, and I would be really excited if we do. Um, awesomemovieyear.com, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, JasonHarrisComedy.com is not even my website. It's GoForJason.com, I think. So, man, I suck. <laughs> uh, and then find me at Jason Harris Comedy or J Harris Comedy on all the social platforms. You can find me at JoshBellHatesEverything.com, at JoshBellHatesEverything on Facebook, and at SignalBleed on Twitter. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. And I've been plugging my new album recently, but I'll also plug I have a Halloween playlist on Spotify with some of my most spooky music. And so, yeah, check that out. It's your music? It is my music. (laughs) I'm sorry. Put that on in the background while you listen to this episode. That's right. So what is in our next episode, Jason? It's my pick, Josh, in the next episode. And I think, Josh, every year that has a Wes Anderson movie, you might get that as my pick. You certainly did this year because in 1999, Rushmore came out and it blew my mind. So tune in next time for Rushmore. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.